Hi, everybody. Look at that. Couple of new toys. I know last week was an embarrassing failure of just sort of sad and epic proportions. So I was like, well, we definitely don't want to do that again. Hi, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas. This is uh, episode 106 of the LT Live Chat, Luke Thomas Live Chat. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm going to try to not rock this camera too much because it's a tabletop. But here, uh, let's see if I can fix this real quick. I'm going to show you guys some fun little tools that we're working with here. So if I do this, look at that, huh? There's Othello wave, wave Othello, gorilla, yeah. And then we can just go back to this one. And you might be like, well, Luke, why do you need two uh, cameras? Well, I don't need two cameras, but with the technical errors that we have had <laughs> on this, probably doesn't hurt to have another one ready to go, if uh, that makes any sense. So um, I told you guys this, it would get better quickly. This is a much better setup. Uh, I'm using, for some transparency sake, Sony a7 III, Sony a7S III, and the uh, system I'm using to power the broadcast into the A10 Mini Pro from uh, Blackjack. Excuse me, Blackmagic. What am I saying? Blackjack. All right, so today on the podcast, we'll talk about whatever's on your mind, the latest in the MMA headlines, and anything else. Please give the video a thumbs up if you would be so kind. Subscribe if you haven't already. We do these once a week, plus I'm going to start doing a whole lot more. Uh, right here on this channel, technical breakdowns and the like. And uh, yeah, we do this for about an hour. If you want to get a question answered and almost a, as close to guaranteed as I can make it, uh, you can leave a donation in the live chat and then put your question there and I will get to it. But certainly you are under no obligation to do that. The first hour is, of course, all free. The whole thing is really free in many ways. All right, with that out of the way, let's take a look at your questions. And I forgot like a stupid bitch to put, <laughs> to put my glasses on. Because why would I? Why would you have glasses to read when you're blind? All right. If I have trouble, I might have to go dig for them. Wait a second. I think the first question is a joke, so I'm going to ignore it. Uh, let's see. How well would Jose Aldo have done at bantamweight if he had had the nutritional information to drop down earlier in his career? He probably would have dominated bantamweight in much the same way he did featherweight. Yeah. Like, he made the transition not just at a different stage in his career in terms of his age, but the accumulation of all the damage that came after that. If he was still the super fresh, athletic, leg-kicking, bantamweight, um, well, if he was the bantamweight that was the original, like, featherweight, that in terms of the style that Jose Aldo, Aldo presented and his peak athleticism, and of course, most importantly, who was in the division at that time, he would have run through that one too. Jose Aldo, probably in a, in a different era, probably could have been a, one of your first champ champs because if he could have nimbly made 135 in the way that he makes it now um, and also you know could have obviously done 145 he could have easily dominated those two divisions I mean there was remember he was supposed to fight Anthony Pettis I can't remember what, what I can't remember if Aldo was going to go up for that or not or if Pettis was going to come down but you know there was even talk about that like Aldo missed out on an opportunity because he came from that Saint Pierre uh, or at least, you know, sort of 
not post, but their post-peak, um, that sort of St. Pete, when the era in which St. Pierre and Silva were the sort of two dominant figures in the sport, he was also uh, a dominant figure, and he came up in that era. And of course, what was that era defined by? It was defined by you know, as many consecutive title defenses as you could rack up. That was sort of seen at the time as like the signature mark of excellence. And of course, he had that and still remains to be, in terms of that uh, reign of dominance, the guy at featherweight. Um, yeah, he would have been a champ champ, no doubt about it. I, th I think he could have mopped up all of those guys, which tells you what kind of talent he was, truly. He, he, it, I won't say he didn't maximize it because we're talking about a guy who, one of the greats, but he didn't get access to certain features of the prize fighting game that have since been unlocked that had he had, had he had a different era in which to compete, um, or if the game had been offering fighters at that time something a little bit... I mean, obviously, Dan Henderson got it when he beat Vanderlei in Pride, so it wasn't like it was unheard of, but the UFC obviously didn't really practice those things at the time. But yeah, I, no, not a doubt in my mind he would have been, if not your first champ champ, another champ champ. He would, he would have easily been able to do that. I think he would have hurt a lot of people. So there's more dumb questions here, which I'm going to ignore. All right, let's see. What dream fight is most likely to happen by this time next year ranked? And here are your choices. Ready? Jones versus Nganu, Shevchenko versus Nunes 3, Zabit versus Yair, Garbrandt versus O'Malley. Ooh. What dream fight is most likely to happen by this time next year ranked? Now, when you say dream fight, you mean like what the fans want? Um, because you're asking me my dream fights. These are not necessarily the ones I would pick. But I'll just assume that these are the ones that the fans want for the purposes of the question. Jones and Ganu, Sivchenko. Most likely to happen. Garbrandt O'Malley seems doable. Uh, and then Zabit, if he comes back. We'll see what happens with Yair's next fight. Um, is Yair fighting Ortega? Did I read that? Who is Yair fighting next? Is that right? Yeah, that was reported mid-February by uh, Ariel. So keep that in mind. Uh, if he gets past Brian Ortega, I don't even know if they're going to make this a beat fight. So I would put, yeah, Garbrandt O'Malley, I would put... As, or I, you know what, honestly, most people are going to say Jones and Ganu, right? But you're asking me personally to what extent anybody cares. Um, you know, I don't have a significant desire to see John Jones return, especially without any effort at uh, bettering his personal situation. And I mean that genuinely for his own health. Like, if that is in order, I think we could, you know, I don't think anyone's going to deny him uh, an opportunity to fight if he wants one, but again, personal interest, of which you are under no obligation to obey or like. So probably the fans would want that one, one, in terms of its accessibility. Two would be Garbrandt O'Malley, again, in terms of its accessibility. You could do Shevchenko Nunes. I think the fans want it, but I don't think UFC really wants it. Uh, I, so I, I kind of would put that three because it, 
you know, you have two active competitors. And then Zabit versus Yair, I would have to put fourth, not because it is the least interesting of them or least accessible. Well, I guess it would be least accessible because Zabit, we just don't have a timeline for his return. Like, we hear these cryptic sort of remarks that he might come back this year, and I, I'm sure that those are probably true, but it's still, I don't know that. And without having a clear sense of things, everybody else is pretty active. Um, I will try to answer this as best I can. God. Luke, do you have any opinion on Brendan Schaub suing a small YouTuber and taking down his channel because he made fun of him? Uh, I have not had an opportunity to speak to Brendan about this, so here's what I can, here's what I can say. Um, I, would, I would really like to get his side of the story uh, because I would like to see if there's any possible avenue where um, I'm not understanding the situation in some kind of way. As a general rule, um, you know, I think DMCA laws uh, are, they're bad in many ways for content creators. I believe in, in fair use strongly. I believe in um, the ability for content creators to remix, again, under fair use considerations. Um, really anything that's available for fair, under fair use guidelines to be quite candid with you. Um, I think that, you know, I don't know what the merits of the suit are in terms of how far it will go. I don't suspect it will go very far, which is probably the good news uh, for all parties involved because I actually don't think it would be in any content creator's interests for, um, for something like this to go forward. I think, one, there's just naturally gonna be blowback from this kind of thing um, as a function of trying to shut down information. So it's just sort of pragmatically not what I would advise. And then on top of it, there's a question of like, what would happen to content creation rules as judgments like this, if in fact they, he was, uh, suits like this were awarded. Hard to say exactly what would happen, but again, these, there, um, who, was the, uh, who was the professor? Clay Shirky. I think Shirky is spelled S-H-I-R-K-Y. I believe that's how you spell it. And he is, uh, I, I think he was, he was a professor at NYU for a time. For a time, he was even in China. I'm not sure where he is these days. He got off Twitter, so, uh, or he doesn't use it hardly, so I don't know where he is. He had a lecture on, remember um, um, the PIPA stuff that they were trying to push through that everyone was deeply concerned about? This was a, a big push by essentially the people who, there was this ability, uh, this, this question of like how much content it can be used fairly, how much can it be remixed, and what should be protected both on the side of the copyright owners and then what should be protected on the people who are just trying to take, you know, uh, elements of it that are not in any way undercutting the business or otherwise robbing them or outright stealing their intellectual ideas and, and property. And how much can they remix that for, um, and, and what kind of laws do we want to allow to make that possible? And he went into the whole, he went into this giant conversation about how we got to that place where the PIPA laws were even going to be suggested and, and what they essentially had meant if they had ever been passed. And really what it was, was those were the giant corporations, giant content creators trying to find ways to use the uh, levers of power to basically not let anyone touch any of their things under any condition whatsoever. Nothing. In fact, one of the, the, one of the things he had brought up was 
someone wanted to go to a printing shop, a t-shirt printing shop, and get like a Mickey Mouse uh, t-shirt for like just one t-shirt for a party, right? They're not selling it, they're not advertising it, they just want that. And um, his argument was if the laws under PIPA had been passed, not that that particular practice would be outlawed, but in theory that practice could be outlawed um, by virtue of how much control it would be giving back. So, you know, um, I strongly support the rights of content creators under fair use considerations, and um, I'll leave it at that. Do you have a problem with referees' arbitrary power and capacity to act on personal preference, or would a more uniform approach to officiating create more problems than it solves? Do you have a problem with arbitrary power and capacity to act on personal preference? I guess I don't fully understand what that means. The, the referee is given, the job of refereeing comes with this idea of discretion. Like they have to have a, some kind of preference, not merely preference along the line. I think what you're saying is preference that is not indicated as part of what the rule set is. You have to have a preference for effective damage if you're a judge. You have to have a preference for effective grappling, that kind of a thing. So I guess you're saying that they enforce certain rules but not others due to a different set of values. Yes, of course, that would be a problem, but it comes from different commissions having different training standards, different practice standards, what kinds of things they tolerate, what kinds of things they don't. Um, and also, again, I go back to it. There is something to be said for letting uh, not, merely, not merely, well, yeah, all officiants, judges and referees, you don't want to tell them um, to not have preferences. You want to tell them to not have preferences that undercut the way the process is done. But even inside how that process is done, there is wide latitude, super wide latitude about the differences in how they see things and what matters. Like you want a little bit of that diversity of opinion, which you don't get if you rigidly tell someone it has to be uh, only one way of interpreting things. Uh, or would a more uniform approach to officiating create more problems than it solves? Yeah, I, I, I don't, again, without a clear understanding of exactly what you're asking, I'm not sure how to answer that, but I do think that granting judges and officiants um, the right to see things as clearly as they can determine them, I think is important. There's a bunch of these with no uh, thumbs up, so I'm gonna go to the next one. We got a question about corners throwing the towel. If during a fight, a fighter's corner decides to throw in the towel, but the referee does not see the towel being thrown in because he is focused on the action between the fighters and has his back to the corner, are there backup precautions to make sure that the fight is stopped in a timely manner after the towel is thrown in? So the fighter doesn't have to take any more damage, or is it that just a situation where the fight goes on until the referee is aware of the towel or decides to stop the fight himself. Yes. So this actually happened relatively recently. I cannot remember the fight. It was, um, it was a top rank fight on ESPN. That part I can remember. And there was a clear situation where the father, oh yeah, the father was cornering the son. Shocker, the bout got ugly and the guy didn't do anything about it. It's like one of the worst combos, the father-son thing. Not, not every time, obviously not every time, but sometimes. Um, So the guy's getting beat up, 
and the corner throws the towel. The ref clearly does not see it because it does happen behind him. You could argue he should have been in a different position, actually, but he didn't see it. And so he didn't stop it, and they just let it go another, like, I think it was like 15, maybe even 20 seconds. Granted, it was the last 20 seconds of the fight itself, and they had called it because it had really gotten bad, and I guess, you know, what's another 20 seconds at that point? Um, but no, I mean, if you look at the rules, there are only certain people who can stop it. Like, you, uh, the, the, you know, the, the timekeeper cannot stop it. The cornerman cannot stop it. The doctor can't even stop it. We call it a doctor stoppage. The doctor can recommend it, but then the referee is the one that has to waive it to make it official. That's true, in, I think, in virtually every jurisdiction. So there's, it's not true that you know, the, uh, they can just like pull the plug on it and the referee has no ability to intervene. I know that's not exactly what you're asking, but here's what I'm trying to say. In cases, I have seen other cases where a towel was thrown and the referee didn't see it, but there was still significant time remaining in the round, including in one case in MMA. What I saw in that case, and I honestly don't know if this is proper protocol, I can only tell you what I saw. What I saw were uh, members of the commission who were in attendance trying to get the referee's attention and then pointing at the towel, and then he saw it, and then he waves it. You know, That happened one time. I did see that. But I have no fucking idea if that's like, what, what is the proper procedure if a corner surrenders on behalf of their fighter and the referee doesn't see it, short of getting his attention, right? Because that's important. Obviously, he's the referee. But remember, he is the one specifically designated with the capacity to call a halt to this under a strict set of conditions, under, but that, of which that is clearly one of them, right? Um, I, what I've seen them do, do is just panic. But there, that's not to say that there's not procedure. I just, I, I am, I'm unfamiliar with what that could be. Luke, give advice on how to stay uh, healthy training jujitsu. Yeah, I wish I knew. <laughs> that wasn't a feature of my training, let me assure you. Again, no one ever talks about this, and everyone's going to be different. Some people are going to be resilient to injury and resistant to it, and some people are just going to be super injury prone, probably somewhere in the middle. But anybody who's trained will tell you this is true. There are dudes who show up, ladies too, mostly dudes though, but sometimes the ladies, who come in there taped up like a mummy. And they're usually like at that purple or brown belt level where this is like all they do, you know? Uh, and they'll tape up their hands, their wrists, their ankles, their toes. They've got, they've got rolls of that shit in their bag and they just look like they're mummified because they're so beat up. They don't give their body any rest. And it's hard to get, you know, it, you, you're not gonna get better sitting around. You gotta get better getting practicing. But dude, it's hilarious how many people you'll see just completely, I mean, stitched together almost literally. Are these pay-per-views weak or what? I remember when pay-per-views were solid from the first fight to the last. Do you really believe RDA is a co-main? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Dude, <laughs> if you think these pay-per-views aren't stacked, boy, do I have some news for you. You should rewind to around 2013 or so, 2012 maybe, even 11. Take a look at some of those pay-per-views, you know. I, I, I'm not saying that the last card was the most stacked card I've ever seen in my life or something, but damn, it gets much worse. It gets much worse. They're making a much better effort 
at trying to put um, big fights on cards together. Like this era of like having three title fights on a card, you know, and I grant they go to that pretty pretty rarely, but that was un, you know, unfathomable because it happened obviously in the early, early days, but long stretches, years where they got away from that. And they kind of brought it back, but they brought it back in a, a bigger and more regal way. Like there's a lot more MMA and so stacking fights is harder. Fighters get injured a lot. They say no more. So, you know, there are some challenges, but I would, I would definitely submit, submit to you that certainly these cards can be criticized. I'm not above that in any capacity, but I would caution against saying that these are like historically weak. Um, the fight night cards are pretty weak by design. The pay-per-views are generally pretty strong by design, give or take. Look, what do you think about scoring very close rounds as 10-9, rounds with a clear winner as 10-8, and rounds with a near stoppage as a 10-7. I mean, that's kind of what, that's not exactly what they do now, but that's supposed to be sort of what, the, well, um, right. So what we're trying to do is find more gradients for. That would make the scoring wild. You'd have a lot of 10-8s at that point, because then the 10-9 would be used pretty, uh, pretty rarely. Like there, there are, you know, it does happen on, probably several rounds of fight card, but if you think about how many rounds there are, over time it's not a giant percentage where the rounds are really close, but you could probably lean in one fighter's direction. If you're gonna turn that into like a, what would be like a nine and a half and a half point system, and then a nine into an eight, right? Because that would be a clear winner, would be a, that would be what we currently call a 10-9, although the 10-9 also encompasses the other one here, so it's kind of both, which is what you're trying to separate. I would have to think this through for a second, but you would get, you would get some interesting scores there where I don't know if I like that idea because if, you, if you're better than me but you only win, you know, it's clear that you won but I didn't get my ass kicked and you get 10-8 on that? Like, how do I win the fight if I could get a 10-9 back or, or I could get a 10-9 on him and then I, I'm, it's almost like I'm being overly penalized for what would be considered now regular performance. Right, a 10-8 is supposed to be a severe penalty, so to speak. Not a penalty in that sense, like they're not docking a point from you because you have done something wrong in terms of breaking the rules. You've not done what you need to to defend yourself. I think that's probably true if someone scores a 10-8 for you. But the point I'm trying to make here is you would have to go 9-8 in that case. So it would still only be a one point difference. Otherwise, you'd start getting some really weird scores in between. I'd have to work the math out to see how it would go. Um, but I think that you would get a 10-9 using a really limited capacity that would grossly expand 10-8, and it would still turn 10-7s into what we currently call 10-8s. The problem that everyone's trying to solve for is, if we don't do half points, then let's just shift points. But the problem they're trying to solve for is 10-9 means two things, 10-8 really means kind of one thing, and 10-7 kind of means one thing. 10-7 means like you barely made it out of that round alive. 10-8 was like, dude, I don't know how much more you're going to take of this. You know, this is headed in the wrong direction very fast. 10-9 is like, okay, you won. Good round for you. 10-9 is also like, I'm going to lean here. I think it was just a little bit more, you know? So 10-9 has two meanings. Clear winner and very, 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 very close winner, edged winner. Whereas 10-8 and 10-7, again, these can mean a lot of different things depending on what the complexion of the fight looks like. 
10.8 can apply to a lot of different scenarios, but conceptually, it's supposed to mean one thing. 10.7 is conceptually supposed to mean one thing. 10.9, by definition, is conceptually supposed to encompass everything from a clear winner until everything up until a draw. That's what 10, and then so what people are trying to do is, how do we solve for that problem? Uh, it's not so easy. Other than scoring as a whole, which is not so easy either. That would, that would create some problems too, but um, you at least wouldn't get, you wouldn't have to worry about that problem. Luke, do you see Bryce Mitchell becoming the dominant grappler that Habib was? Boy, you guys are... That's a lot. Uh, Habib wasn't the best in any specific part of grappling. That's not true. But the totality of his grappling was better than any person ever made. He probably had the best takedowns in the UFC. I don't really agree with that at all. Um, how many people do you know had the variety of takedowns with that kind of success against his peers? They couldn't stop him. Like, oh yeah, they could stuff this one, they could stuff that one. But look at the ledger. You know, okay, whatever you want to say about the Gleason T-Bout fight, whatever. But the, 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 He's got him from double underhooks. He's got it when you have an underhook and he has a whizzer. He's got it from a single underhook. He's got throws, trips, sacrifice throws, single leg attacks, double leg attacks. He's got chaining them together. He, I mean, you know, when I, Daniel Cormier obviously has this decorated past in wrestling and there are a lot of other people in the UFC who have more, um, you know, uh, composite wrestling credentials. I don't know if Khabib has any in that, in that level. I know he has Sambo, but not pure wrestling. Uh, any achievements of note, but in terms of what kind of wrestling he showed in MMA, you know, uh, I don't, I don't know if I can name any other wrestlers who have that amount of variety with that much success against that many of their peers. I'd have to think that through a little bit because obviously John Jones has had a lot of success, but even then, I mean, look at what Habib did to everyone all the way up to the Gaethje fight, like. You know, it was relentless. It was it was overwhelming. Granted, all the other pieces of his game that fit in, but dude, inside trips, outside trips, Uchimatas, Harai Goshis, Osoto Garis, Taitoshis, single leg, double leg, high crotch lifts, suplex, uh, lateral drops. You know, I mean, I could just go on and on. I could just go on and on. Head tosses. Um, it's endless with him. And to be able to do that against all of his peers in an undefeated man, I mean, it's just, I don't know that I agree that like he wasn't the best at any one thing. But okay, let's say it's debatable. He's top five. Face down. Okay, all right. Uh, we'll try not to face down then. Um, oh, it's because it's touching my neck. That's why. That's why. Uh, so wait a second. Let me get back to this Habib thing. Definitely. Bryce Mitchell can become that. Well, Bryce Mitchell's 27. Now, the thing that uh, we go back to, like with the Edson Barboza comparisons, Edson um, defended like way more. I think Habib had like 13 attempts, and Ed, and Habib only got four of the four of 13, whereas Bryce got four of four. However, I think um, Habib had more than double the amount of strikes landed on the ground, right? So Habib is opening up a lot more. And by the time that you know. Bryce Mitchell got to uh, Edson Barboza. I don't think it's unfair to say like that's a shit ton of damage. Granted, Habib, you know, got a ton of damaged, got a, got a very damaged uh, Edson Barboza as well, but it's even more pronounced at this point. I, I would say that um, 
you know, I don't know if that kind of thing is possible. I mean, you're talking about like the very best in his weight class ever. Can he be the very best in his weight class ever by virtue of that kind of dominant wrestling? Shit, man, you're asking a lot. I don't know. I really don't know. That's, that's going to be reserved for a very special few. What I would say, though, is, um, you know, he's got pieces of his game already in place at age 27 that make you think that not only is he already very ahead of many of his peers, but he's got a certain kind of game that's going to translate as the other pieces of his game come along as well. It's going to make his wrestling even deadlier. He's got a lot of right ideas about how to use it, how to pursue it, how to secure it, what's valuable, what's not, what matters, what doesn't, what, what are the tricks that I need to use about what works, what works in MMA for people who like to do what I like to do. He's very good at identifying those things. Habib is, if you, I really recommend you watch his, if you guys can, go watch his BJJ Fanatics um, seminar. There is a real clear sense when you watch that, that he has tried a bunch of different stuff, Habib, and he found a system that worked. And each thing in that system was picked because you could see it had been tried, tested, the works. It, it had done what it was set out to do. Like, okay, this is a thing I know works. I've used it. I've used things like it that didn't work. Everything he went through was like, I used it in this fight. It was battle tested in this way. There's just a real clear sense that what he's telling you works if you can pull it off, will be hugely effective. You could pinpoint so many different things about Bryce Mitchell's grappling game that make you think, um, we will all have to see, that make you, give you confidence that he can continue to lord that over his peers, and as he continues to build on it, as well as the other pieces of his game, this will all form a more cohesive, difficult to challenge whole. Um, but, you know, can he lord over the, the entire division in the way that Khabib did as he just moved on through? It is certainly possible, but for anybody trying to do something that grand, probably fair to say it should be a wait-and-see approach. All right, now try not to, like, mess up the microphone here. Dude, where are all the wrecked questions that I like? Here we go. Uh, look, this is more of a statement slash suggestion than a question. Have you been watching the Chumayev, Jesus Christ, I'm blind, and Till series on YouTube? Absolutely amazing watch. I, I've only seen one episode, and it, was, and it was hilarious. They seem like an interesting pair. Different people, different parts of the world, but they kind of work well together, like... Till's got some slickness, uh, some size. He's got a certain way and rhythm of fighting that, uh, as good as um, Chemayev is, could only benefit from learning from. And conversely, that intensity from Chemayev, that you know, grab a hold of you, game, uh, game seven, bottom of the ninth, two outs, fully lo uh, bases loaded, full count. I mean, that's that's the kind of energy he brings every single time. I think Till could use a little kick in the pants like that, to be honest with you. I think it will only benefit him. They, they, they work for a reason. They're getting something from each other. Um, and maybe in a transactional way, maybe not. But what I mean to say is like, hey, you teach me this, I'll teach you this, right? There's, a, there's an open uh, trade about it. But it seems like they get along as people as well. So there's a, there's a, there's a humanity that I think um, uh, by which they're bonded. But then I think there's a professional, not just respect, but recognition um, between them as well.
Okay, a few months ago, I saw a fantasy MMA tournament for the bantamweight division that involved Jan Sterling Lineker, Pettis Horiguchi, Bibiano Fernandez, etc. This and Yuri Prohachka getting a title shot while only two fights removed from his rising career have me curious. What are some promotional crossover fights that you wish we could see? Whether we get them or not. Yes, go as crazy as Verhoeven versus Gahan. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I frankly, I don't watch nearly enough kickboxing as I need to to be as up-to-date on names as I probably otherwise could or should be. I'll say I know Rico. But um, cross-promotional. I got to tell you, I think there's some good fighters in one. I would love to see Demetrius Johnson enter the Bellator Bantamweight Tournament. How good would that be? You know, so you have Horiguchi. You could get a rematch there. You have... Pettis, Magomed Magomedov, um, Ralphie and Stotts, you know, whoever else is in that whole thing. I forget the list at this point. Dude, you, Apache Mix is in it. You got some hammers in there. Would just absolutely love to see that. Would love it. Would be so great. Um, you know, the Bellator and UFC crossovers. Do I even need to say what Patricio Pitbull would mean to go over and fight some of those guys or for um, AJ McKee? Uh, obviously, PFL has some good guys. Magomed Karamov, Ray Cooper, Kayla Harrison. I don't need to say anything about that. Any of the, this is the thing though, to me, and, and I talked about this on, um, I talked about this on Morning Combat. People poo-poo the idea of cross-promoting because it's kind of fallen out of favor. Everyone wants to sell it off and do their own thing. And I don't really expect the UFC to do it. They did it with Mayweather and they did it with Pride when they sent Chuck to what, the 2003, their Pride Middleweight Grand Prix. So Pride Middleweight was actually light heavyweight. They just called it middleweight. Um, or did they call? I can't even remember anymore. Welterweight was their middleweight. Yeah, I think that's right. Something like that. They 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 had a whole weird thing. But um, is that right? I can't remember how it worked anymore. Anyway, the point being is the the basically all the light heavyweights. That's where he fought Overeem and, and eventually lost to uh, Rampage. So they've done it, and they tried to bring Vanderlei over. That was the whole thing. Vanderlei was going to come from Pride. Chuck was going to go over from UFC, and a lot of it has there's. I'm not going to say there's never been a grand crossover event, but there is no, to my knowledge, and I'm trying to think real hard here, to my knowledge, there isn't a great example of a cross-promotional event where both sides put in roughly equal amounts, both sides got a lot out of it, it created memorable I'm not going to say historic in the sense that it was the best ever or the most important, but you know, relevant MMA. And that the fans loved it. I, I, I can think of a lot of UFC events that are not obviously cross-promotional, but if I had take out the cross-promotional part and then think of everything I just named, how many UFC events could you think of that did that? Or Pride, or whatever. You can think of individual organizations who have done that. Who has done that when partnering with somebody else? Like, for example, Strikeforce and the Elite XC had to partner because there was a conflict, I think, in Frank Shamrock's contract so they had to do it and it was fine but there wasn't it wasn't some grand thing um obviously pride and ufc couldn't really make it work now i guess you could say may mac but that's boxing so we're talking in mma because may mac would qualify right it was a big big to do for everybody everybody kind of won obviously mcgregor lost but he kind of won right but inside mma you know you've had pancrase versus shuto you've had dream and sengoku get together you've had um You've had some K1 crossovers over the years. Um, you know, obviously I don't know all of the Japanese crossovers. 
I don't know to what extent like rings ever did any crossovers or whatnot or cross promotion. But you know, if you think about it, there have been good winnable moments from this. M1 was kind of just Fedor and then all these donks, but you know, it was good for Strike Force to get Fedor here. It has paid dividends for Scott Coker. That Fedor is still kind of around and doing pretty important things for them. So there's that. And then um, in other cases, there have been certain partnerships. Obviously, the trade between U one and UFC, there was no event, but this working together, you see these small little moments where it's kind of paid off a little bit. I guess the real challenge is someone's got to come up with the right kind of architecture that makes that makes for mutual winning. As long as promoters see it as a zero-sum game where I can only win if you lose, you can only win if I lose, there can only be that scenario, right? As long as promoters have a, frankly, a rational fear of that, you're not going to get what you, what you need. But if you just look around at outside the UFC and how many fights you can make that would be of interest to the fans, it's an absolute fucking truckload. Like, that is where, that's the fertile soil to me for cross-promoting. That is where those promoters creatively working together have the most to gain in terms of putting on the kinds of MMA that matter in terms of what its relevance is and can, in certain cases, do, um, you know, if not UFC numbers, better numbers than they would otherwise be able to do on their own. Those are the entities that need it, those are the entities that can do it, and those are the entities I think the fans would benefit from. I mean, just understand something as a rule, right? What is the job of the promoter? Stated plainly, what is the job of the promoter? If I had to ask you that, I said, tell me in one sentence, what is a promoter's job? The answer is to put on fights that people want to pay money to see. That's it to put on fights that people want to pay money to see. This is why we have this pro wrestling element to MMA, because that's really the only modus operandi. That is the clear goal. That's the clear purpose of a promoter. Good promoters do a lot more than that. Bad ones do a lot less. But that's the general idea. And so if you remember that edict, there are ways to serve that without having to co-promote. But I think, I think we're in a place now where the, I, I really believe this. There's a little, bit, a little bit of a poverty of imagination among all uh, promoters about what's possible here. I think if they're a little bit, yes, you're gonna have to take a little bit of risk. There's no doubt, you're gonna have to give a little. I, 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 you, no one's gonna engineer, unless you're working with suckers, no one's gonna engineer some kind of okie doke but um, so much market potential there that is absolutely underutilized. So much that's underutilized that you could do just between PFL and Bellator. Just between those two entities, you could do a, a ton. Someone says, I thought the, that fighters thanking sponsors was not allowed by the UFC, but last weekend two fighters did so. Right, I don't know if that changed. I wondered about that too. Um, are they being rebellious or possibly the companies are paying the UFC to allow the fighters to mention them in what feels like a more organic way? Yes, it's probably that they also, certain companies, have permission to be mentioned in that way, but uh, we have to double check. What are the odds of UFC ever going back to hosting fight nights around the globe considering they found a way to uh, host it at the apex to minimize the costs and basically cheat their way out of doing smaller shows in smaller cities? You got to remember what UFC used to be. UFC used to be 
the person in your neighborhood who knocks on your door to get signatures for some stupid political cause that you don't care about. And what I mean by that is the person who got out there and literally went door to door to door, block to block, neighborhood to neighborhood, area to area, city, well not city to city, but you get the idea, like really maximizing that space. The road show of the UFC was supposed to be evidence of not just its popularity, hey, look at what all comes here, but B, look at how much we give to the city of Wichita, look at how much we give to the city of Phoenix, Charlotte, you name it. Um, and it was to touch the fans in a way where they didn't get access to this traveling show, but for the time that, you know, it came to their neck of the woods. Not everyone can go to Vegas, not everyone can do that kind of thing. But the pandemic has, and, the, and the business model has just dramatically reshifted it. To answer the question first, I do think they'll get a little bit out of their perch. Um, you know, if COVID stays where it is now, or who the fuck knows what's going to happen with that. But I'm just saying, if rules aren't put, all these mask mandates are dropping, all these vaccination requirements are dropping, not everywhere, but you guys know the story. Most places are totally gone. Here, even in Washington, D.C., they're totally gone. Um, uh, even the mask mandate, you don't have to have it. And so what I'm saying is as long as that is in place so they can openly, because if, if, once those start coming back up, TV uh, networks, um, they told me this, uh, someone told me this in the industry this year that TV networks don't want to see people on the, and like sports networks, don't want to see people with masks on at events. Um, so the networks don't want it. Obviously the fans don't want it. Uh, well, nobody really wants it, but but the point I'm trying to make here is UFC definitely won't go on the road in those cases. Like if that comes flaring back up, then the answer is probably not not at all. Um, to the extent that that stays minimized, knock on wood, uh, I do think they'll get out a little bit. I do think they'll get out a little bit. They're, because here's what's going to happen if they don't. A lot of... I mean, they've got such a lead on their competitors. I don't think they care anymore. That's partly one thing. The other part, you know, it used to be that they were doing the road shows and going everywhere all the time to like Columbus, Ohio, and all this stuff because they wanted to be, they wanted to show up to a market, dominate it, get local press, establish connections, have a grand show, put a bunch of money into the economy, and then go on to the next city and do that so that no other competitor could come to that market and have that kind of impact and, you know, just really be the, the, the dominant force. They're so dominant, they don't even have to worry about that now. Plus, with all the contracted revenue, and again, they have their own in-house facilities at Apex, it hasn't really affected the ratings. Something's going to have to kick them in the pants. A competitor making a gain in an international market could conceivably get them to go a little bit more on the road in that level. If ratings begin to flag, if they notice that certain markets aren't showing the same kind of buy rates or whatever, and they, you know, bringing a show there or some kind of way to pump energy back into that, perhaps that would get them off of their perch. But you just got to remember them. Contracted revenue. You guys know the whole story. What reason do they have to get on the road now? They never had to get on the road before, but it was extremely beneficial. What would going on the road do now for them that they don't already get, basically? Nothing. It wouldn't materially raise their revenue in any kind of dramatic way, arguably given the cost, it could potentially undercut it. So there's nothing compelling them to do that, whereas before, this kind of UFC slash MMA campaign for, in many cases, um, you know, came on the heels of legalization efforts. Like, hey, we promised the state of Tennessee. I think one of the first ever UFC on FXs was in Tennessee. They had gone to the state of Tennessee and asked them to establish a commission 
because they want to go to Tennessee, they want to go to all these places, they wanted a commission to regulate it. And I don't know if they, Tennessee even had a commission or they had one, but they had no MMA side of it. And they got that whole regulatory process moved and they brought like a show there. Like that was part of it too, was honoring some of these, these broader commitments. So they had a, those, those, that traveling circus, pay-per-view or fight nights had a real utility that doesn't exist in the current complexion of the business. I could have sworn that there was like a bunch of well-liked, there we go. What do you think allows for the relationship between Dana and the fans? He's largely beloved despite often talking poorly about the fan base. Does he? Oh yeah, right, he calls them shitheads on social media. Like calling critics of the Connor title shots idiots. <laughs> I don't care about the insults, but find it interesting that he's maintained this adoration, whereas other heads of sport like Manfred and Goodell would and have become pariahs for comparatively tamer things. Well, um, you know, again, the best comparison is not commissioner of a league. It would be owner of a team. Uh, that's a better comparison. So while you don't see Goodell act that way and you don't see uh, Manfred act that way, granted, you don't see Jerry Jones act that way, but Jerry Jones certainly is a more colorful personality, excuse me, than the two men aforementioned. So that's one thing. The, the, the comparison is not quite right. Two. This has been something that has been interesting to me as well. Um, when Dana White first began to make a big public splash, so again, you know, uh, post-Ultimate Fighter, I began to watch the reactions because he was coming out and saying like, you know, as you indicated, disparaging things and contradictory things and all this kind of stuff. What you have to remember is the average fan, and certainly this was interesting to me, like I would get, you know, people like, oh, I would be at the, the office back when I worked at SB Nation and they would be like, oh, what do you cover? And, you know, this is not 2005, this is closer to like, you know, eight or nine or whatever, but it, the, the point still holds. I'd be like, oh, MMA, and they're like, oh, I love Dana White. And I would ask him, like, why do you, why? Like, what, what, what is it about him that you like? Because again, you're right, like you don't hear that about, not just commissioners. There's not a lot of people that go, I love the owner of my team. And even that's pretty rare. So what they said was, he just tells it like it is. He, he, just, he just tells it like it is. He's the guy that just, you know, he's, he's, the, he's the anti-executive, right? Well, all those guys hem and haw, he does it. And I always thought that that was like a really weird way to look at it. Um, because you're a promoter. It doesn't matter what you're promoting. But what you're going to do is promote those interests. That's not telling it like it is. That's telling the world how you want them to see it, right? Every promoter, we know this, every promoter has a very tenuous relationship with the truth. Like for me, you know, when I hear another person being like, yes, this promoter of combat sports, well, they just tell it like it is. Certainly it is true that there are times where he has had very candid um, rants that have been recorded. The famous one against Gary Shaw and the whole Kimbo Slice, Seth Petrozelli thing is a famous one. Like that's fucking illegal, like that one. That one was a big one. So that, so yes, it's not that the, the entire idea is not altogether true, but it's just a really weird way to compliment a combat sports promoter. The job requires, I'm not even like bashing, the job requires you to have a tenuous relationship with the truth. It just does. You can't, the good promoters have a tenuous relationship with the truth. The bad promoters are the ones that think that they're gonna tell you the truth and that's gonna be some kind of workaround. It doesn't work, those guys all fail. So you can't even do it unless you're doing it in like a semi-dishonest way. That that's the job. 
excuse me, that's the job. So that's why when people are like, yeah, he just tells it like this, I'm like, work. And then you would ask them how much exposure to him they had had, and the answer was not very much. They heard a snippet here, they heard a snippet there. So I was like, oh, right, well, as they get more exposure, maybe they'll come to feel differently. We'll have to see. And that didn't work either. And the reason why is because, it, my, or my best assessment of things is, one, there is a certain anti-executiveness to him that I don't think anyone could deny, even though he is an executive. But there's a certain uh, cultural sensibility of things that he rejects that I think the fans love. But the, perhaps the most important part is he is the avatar of their interests. That's why they love him. Yes, they love the brashness. Yes, they love the blah, blah, blah. You know, um, the rowdy, tough guy personality. They, they love all that, all that stuff. But the real core of it is, what undergirds all of it, if you ask me, is whose interest? I'm going to give you three groups. Dan, or three entities. Dana White. Fans. Fighters. Of those three entities... Pick the two that are whose interests are most closely aligned. Would you go fighters and Dana? No. Would you go fighters and fans? They're aligned in a lot of ways, but no, not aligned in a whole lot of other ways. Oh, right. You would go Dana and the fans, right? The closer he matches what they want, um, or rather I should say, what he wants already dovetails exactly with what the larger preferences are, especially in terms of like even casual preferences, because those are the biggest ones, right? The hardcore fan base is not big. The casual fan base is, is actually considerable. It's large. So going along with what they want is actually even more of an interest. So when you think about it, he tailors what, he tries to tailor, I think, the identity of the UFC as being like, you know, this is the anti-boxing, I'm the anti-executive. That's another part too, right? Where the anti-boxing, like, those guys don't make the good guys fight, we make good guys fight. And there, by the, which there is some merit to that position, certainly. Um, but in general, what I think happens is if you really examine whose interests are aligned, it's the promoter and it's the fan. I think he acts in a way um, that captures imagination and obviously has had a very successful track record. We shouldn't lose sight of that either. You know, they're... If, they're arguably a monopoly. Um, so the success combined with like the sort of, you know, anti-executiveness anti combined with the fact that what he wants and what he says and what he promotes, not all the time, obviously he has had a couple of um, clashes, but of all the different entities that I named, their interests are most closely aligned. They're gonna have, nat the fans are gonna have natural sympathy for Dana, in, in just by virtue of that, in many cases, you may be like, "Well, isn't that the case in boxing?" No, because the fighters have much more say over the process, so the promoter occupies a slightly different position there. Although I would say Eddie Hearn certainly gets some slavish praise, although he gets killed too. But um, but with UFC having such control over the industry and the fighters having such little uh, a say in the matchmaking process, other than just you know declining it over and over again, getting their contracts extended, there's a symmetry of interests that I think powers uh, a lot of it. On top of it, this um, identity of UFC as the toughest sport, as like the realest sport, and he's like the realest executive and the toughest executive. It's all kind of aligned in that way. Like if you're a brand, if you are a fan of the UFC brand, the idea would be he would be the brand come to life. 
right? So you would naturally, if you're a fan, you would naturally like that guy. I think they've done a pretty good job of making the, and Dana White certainly has, has done a good job of, uh, well, good for them, of making the his identity synonymous with the brand and like almost the avatar for the fans' interest as well as the corporate corporate identity. There's a there there's an intersection there where all that's happening and it's it has profound consequences. Try not to. What is your waist size? I will tell you. Uh, I'm a tweener. I'm a tweener. Uh, I'm. I'm almost at a 36. I gotta lose like seven more pounds, maybe something like that, and I'll be a clean 36. The 36s are currently a little tight, um, but the 38s are too big, so I'm like a bit of a tweener. Luke, what are your fondest memories? Excuse me, I'm gonna look down. Fondest memories from the time you started covering MMA, co-founding Bloody Elbow, and what was better about MMA 15 years ago? Um, what was better? It was more, well, there's, what was better? The organizational parody was better. Um, yes, the organizational parody was better. So that made it interesting. And it was less political, <laughs> which I, you know, for everyone who's like, I'm so sick of all these LeBron James and Rob Rob doing us in the NBA, it's like, yeah, tell me. Let me tell you how I feel about um, all the political views espoused in MMA. But okay, you know, here's what, the, the point I'm trying to make is this. You have, MMA has not an, always had and always will have genuine weirdos, like, but weirdos in the good sense, you know? I feel like you had more weirdos back there in the, back then in the good sense, but that could simply be romanticism. Um, I think the most interesting part about it was like watching all of the industry being built in real time. Watching websites pop up, watching the ratings begin to go up, watching people asking me more about UFC, watching UFC getting better coverage, fighters getting bigger names, fighters getting bigger checks, being on ESPN. This was like in 2007 when Chuck and Rampage for whatever, whatever UFC that was back in the day. Um, you know, you begin to see these things build, and then you go look at Bloody Elbow and, and um, uh, watching the coverage go up. And by the way, like, the only reason SB Nation's in the combat sports business is because of the guy who founded Bloody Elbow, which was Nate, um, um, Kid Nate, he, he goes by, and uh, that he recruited me. We built it into a, a pretty respectable beast, and then because of that, they decided to have some additional investment including in, uh, bringing in at the time UFC Mania, and then they had to change to MMA Mania, which is still part of the SB Nation network. And then that was also what um, the growth of those two engines also powered, ultimately, what they decided to do was in, ter in terms of buying MMA fighting from AOL. Now, obviously, that was already a very strong property as well. But, um, you know, watching us build that thing was amazing. And then no one really knows this, but for a time, we had something called the USA Today SB Nation Consensus MMA Rankings, where we would take all the different rankings from all the different people who were doing them and at the time. That was pretty robust, and then coming up with a little bit of math to make it all work out, work out together into a single ranking. And you would see the, the, the results of that were really good. We, we got a, a ton of praise and a ton of uh, uh, compliments on how people felt like those were the most accurate ones for as long as they lasted. Then. USA Today, you know, moved into the MMA junkie business and they're still in it. And, you know, it's been a profitable um, 
think move for them, but just watching the industry begin to grow, watching these sites begin to grow, watching these efforts begin to grow, watching your, your hobby turn into your life. It's just you, every month was like, I can't believe this is happening. It keeps moving, it keeps moving, it keeps moving. And then by May of 2007, this is a true story, I called the first, you guys know this if you watch this, I called the first um, pro, uh, professional MMA event ever in Washington, D.C., about which I am extremely proud. Um, from there, I made a bunch of connections. I, you know, watching people you had trained with begin to make it to big organizations, begin to make it to the UFC. Watching Mike Easton, you know, make his UFC debut and all kinds of, Brandon Vera, all kinds of stuff, man. It was just, it just was this exciting time of explosive growth and you just wondered how big could it be. But I would tell you folks, like, you know, what I traded, I don't know. That was the era in which I grew up and I, I don't know. I don't know what's better in, in terms of coming up now or coming up then. It, it, there was not nearly as much competition then, but the industry is much larger now. So there's, there's trade-offs. But what I would say is, the thing that really has been of interest to me is um, you know, longevity in this business is tough. Most people in this business, doesn't matter what it is, officiants, fighters, media, um, managers, you know. They come and go, man. They come and go. There's so many managers that used to, I used to have to deal with that I don't know if they have a single client anymore. All right, I don't even know if they're in the business anymore. Um, and of course, the fighter turnover is extraordinary. Media turnover is extraordinary. So I'm, I'm very grateful for the ability to um, still be able to do some of this, to be quite candid with you. There we go. Look, I'm really curious about how you balance family commitments with your work schedule. I work in a different field, but play a similar game in creating content and battling algorithms. You consistently record post-fight live shows, kiss Saturday nights goodbye, you cover breaking news, you've got MK, resume reviews, rooftop pregame previews, you're firing up your own channel again, and you found a studio for, you're traveling for events, you do so much in work schedule, it clearly requires a massive commitment, which comes with significant sacrifices. How do you keep the household intact or do you just have the most supportive wife in the world? Um, that's part of it. Do you have any tips, principles, or strategies to share based on your years of experience at this pace? I find myself consumed with work, much of it I enjoy, which makes balancing my personal life difficult. There are obviously many factors at play here, but if you could share some of your experience, it would be greatly, greatly appreciated. Yes, here is how I do it. I don't. <laughs> I don't have a balanced life at all. Um, there's the secret. There is no hidden hour. There is no uh, magic trick. There is 24 hours in a day and either you use them motherfuckers or you don't. That's it. I don't have a balanced life. I don't, and I'm not saying that anyone needs to copy this. I'm not saying this is good. I'm just saying this is my life. If you're asking about my life, I will tell you. Um, I don't have a balanced life. I don't see friends very often. I, uh, I, am, I do make time for my family. Now that I don't fuck with. Um, they get the priority. But after that, I just, I just work. I don't, <laughs> um, you know, and I read and stuff like that, but I don't, like, what are my hobbies? Motherfucker, you're looking at it. Like, you know, what do you do for fun? You're looking at it. Like, I don't, this, there, I don't know how you could balance and do it, short of just not getting much sleep, right? I guess if some, and some people can do that. They can get like four hours of sleep and then they, you know, they go on about their day or whatever. That's not me. That's not me, I need sleep. But uh, yeah, I don't balance. Because I don't, 
think I could do what I want to do and do that. So, hope that <laughs> hope that helps. <laughs> uh, all right, let's um, let's take a look at some of your questions that you paid for, if you did. And again, oh, you charge people for that? No. If you want to, you can leave one. If you don't, don't. Simple as that. All right, let's go to. All right, let's see. Okay, Kennesaw legend Wildman Dent Myers passed away a few weeks back. Any final thoughts? No, sorry, I don't know who the hell that is. And um, I did spend my senior year, I got to do one of these programs where, you know, if you if your grades were up and you had good enough test scores and stuff, you, uh, half of my day and senior year was spent in college and I half was in high school. So I took college classes my senior year. Um, not just, a, I took AP classes at college and then I actually went to a college. I went to Kennesaw State University and we took, uh, I took a bunch of classes um, as a college, as a high school student. Um, that's the only thing I know about Kennesaw, sorry. Luke, you criticized the use of sanctions versus Russians for the decision of Putin. What action would you do? You know, this is a very funny thing to me. I have learned that no matter how explicit I make an argument, there is an overwhelming amount of people who do not hear what I am saying. Or even if I write it in explicit terms who do not understand what I am saying. I don't know what this person heard or didn't heard uh, specifically, but I will tell you that listening and reading comprehension skills are not in as much supply as they should be. Did I or did I not state explicitly, and I'll tell you how I did it explicitly, that I'm not telling you if the sanctions are good or bad. I don't know. What I did argue was that they were significant. They are real. They have a huge effect. Um, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, which was exactly my point. I don't know how the ordinary Russians will react to it. I don't know how the government will react to it. None of us know how any of us will react to it um, because they're so historically sweeping and new and um, utterly significant. Now, I did weigh in on, given the significance of that, it does seem to me inappropriate to then ban uh, athletes, in this particular case, combat sports athletes from you know, boxing or MMA in the United States and in parts of Europe or whatever. Yes, that part I did make a very clear judgment on. Um, but I don't have, none of us really know. I mean, dude, the best economists in the world are all like, fuck if I know what's going to happen, we'll see. There are political consequences, economic ones, and they're very hard to potentially forecast given just how severe and limiting they are. My argument was that they were so significant that it was worth hitting the pause button to just see what is going to happen. They could work, potentially. And then we'll say, okay, well, then we, our job here is done, or they fail miserably, or it's something in between, and then potentially other measures make sense. This is all so new, but I did not argue specifically that, that I criticized the use of them. I criticized the boycott ideas of people given the significance of the sanctions. Thought that was explicit. Why has Kayla Harrison been anointed a star? She hasn't fought anyone noteworthy and doesn't have a crazy social media following. Seems odd to assume her Olympic success will guarantee any star power or dominance in MMA. Well, uh, I don't 
know that I would agree that it's odd. I would actually not agree with that at all. Now, um, her star power probably can rightly be said to somewhat be overstated by MMA media uh, in terms of her existing popularity, right? How popular is she? Is she a pay-per-view star currently? No, she is not. Um, she could be one, which I'm going to talk about in just a second. But, you know, where does, it, where does her stock stand today? It doesn't stand in such a way that she could command 500,000 buys on pay-per-view, even potentially with a fight against Cyborg, although that would be her best chance. But certainly you get the idea. She does not have a track record in that way. Okay, fair. To to totally reasonable to be like, hey, maybe we should be more realistic about where that, that stock currently sits. However... One, there is a strong correlation, not merely with uh, excellent performance and gold medal winning in MMA, but um, with star power associated with winning and uh, uh, having that star power within the combat sports industry, right? So there's so many fighters who have had um, either high-profile fights or high-profile moments who had Olympic backgrounds. Pride threw a lot of these guys to the wolves, and some of it, not all of it panned out, but I would humbly submit to you, I mean, I keep saying this, and folks don't understand this, no American man, and, and we got close, Travis Stevens got very close, he got a silver, okay? But no American man has ever won a gold. Y'all, she got him at two different Olympic games. Like, and women's judo is, has a very high participatory rate globally. She ain't fighting scrubs, let me assure you, she is not fighting scrubs or, you know, um, facing off with them. And she did it up at like 170, 170-ish. Now, um, you know, she has a different set of priorities. I would submit to you that her dominance in MMA is clear. Granted, it is not perfect, no fighters is, but is she beating the fuck out of her opponents? Yeah, yeah. A Couple times she's had to work through some things, but in general, the, the future looks quite bright, number one. Number two, um, I, again, would circle back to the idea that if she can continue her winning, and I would agree that you know winning is going to be a critical ingredient, especially given the pedigree and what it means to be a gold medalist, a two-time gold medalist. Um, but guys, it is impossible for me to believe that U UFC and ESPN putting the full court press behind her, her getting in, you know, Amanda Nunes fight or something. Let's say she got one and she won. If you don't think that this would meaningfully move the needle on massively growing her star power, boy, are you in for a surprise. I don't know if they will do that, but she is outspoken. She's smart. She has a fucking hell of a story from the trauma she's experienced to the difficulty she's overcome. Even if she had a silver spoon in her mouth, just her wins in judo are extraordinarily impressive. And she's undefeated as a fucking hammer in MMA. Guys, if you can't make a star out of her, you can't make a star. Period. <laughs> you know, again, under the condition that she wins. Now, she goes in and she gets her ass kicked. Well, that's a different story. But if she can continue beating up people and getting better with it, which I, can, I suspect she will... You can't turn her into a star. I, you just can't turn, like, you can't do it. You can't make a star. You have a two-time Olympic gold medalist who is media savvy, hardworking, and a, and a, a, a well, has a Ronda Rousey connection, and is just a brutalizer. I mean, I, I, it, if that's not enough, then nothing is. And I understand she's had some performances that were a little more pedestrian, but... I'm going to bank off the fact that the more recent ones have 
in general been, pull up a resume here real quick, just to be on the safe side. By the way, a lot of these Olympians, they have done so much media that they, by the time they get to MMA or boxing, they usually aren't so, um, you know, they, they, they have the ability to do it quite well. Yeah, I mean, she hasn't been past the second round since 2019. You know, granted, I understand she's not fighting Amanda Nunes level opponents. Like we all, we all get it. That's fine, but the dominance is there, and I think it will continue. Are UFC matchmakers trying to get Ferguson killed? Man, that's a tough. Fight. Or I'll just put it here. Are they trying to get him killed? It's a tough assignment. It's a tough assignment. I just think there's a culture in MMA that puts guys like Ferguson in a position to want to take risks like this. Um, it's, you know, it's the opposite approach to Jim Miller. Jim Miller's not trying to fight the top guys. He's just trying to fight at all. And, uh, but I do think that the, you know, a fight like this on top of everything he's already been through could be, could be, could be bad. Could be really bad. Colby and Hamzat Rachmanov. Excuse me, Colby versus Kamzat. Maybe Colby beats Rachmanov because we haven't seen his wrestling fully. I mean, he might be both of them. But right now, I'll go Colby. Right now, because you ask right now. Right now, I'll go Colby. Someone says, Luke, you look great. Have a protein bar on me. Thanks. Oh, on the uh, there was someone's asking about the at the the riot in Mexican soccer. I didn't, I haven't kept up with it too much, but I did see some of the video of it. You know, that's a lot of aggression for real shitty soccer. That's a lot of that's a lot of heat. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Luke, here's my weekly contribution to keeping that hair looking fresh. Thank you, fellas. I'm assuming uh, some UFC media members are higher paid than most fighters they cover. It's yeah, maybe a handful. Maybe a handful. If this is true, what are your thoughts on this? I don't think much about it. Do your colleagues or yourself share any moral... Why would we not be allowed to make whatever the market dictated? Whether it's more or less than any other industry is irrelevant. If, if The argument isn't people should make less because the fighters make less. The, the point should be everyone should just make more. Um, do I have moral dilemmas? No, I don't have, I sleep very soundly about how I get my paycheck. No, I don't have a, uh, one fucking dilemma about it whatsoever. That doesn't mean that I don't want better for others who might not be able to share that same enthusiasm, but um, I definitely don't have a problem at all. It's, 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 an, it's, an, it's a meaningless comparison. The comparison would only be within the same industry for relatively similar things. I mean, I guess you could be like, you know, if a guy cleaning bathrooms at the Wawa was making 350K, we'd have a different conversation, but the market doesn't push it in, in some kind of obviously weird and insane direction. So no, no, I, I feel just fine. And by the way, the amount of people, the amount of MMA media members who make more than the fighters they cover not many. Not many. If not Islam, who fights for the belt after Justin slash Charles? Lightweight top 10 looks like an infamy ward combined with a nursing home. <laughs> also, who is more right wing, Bryce Mitchell or Habib? 
Bryce is more American, right? You know, by virtue of being American. Um, are you asking who's like more conservative? Habib's probably more conservative. Who fights for the belt after Justin and Charles? It's gotta be Islam. Oh, if not Islam. RDA? I mean, who the fuck? I don't know. Would you consider putting questions up on the screen as you answer them so I don't have to rewind to know what you're talking about if I join late? That is in, that is, that's planned. We have to get a battery into this camera so that it works when I plug it in. But short of that, yes, that's on the list. How do training partners deal with sweat in close combat sports? Are there precautions in place for both comfort and safety? Oh, here's someone who's never trained. Or do people just have to deal with it? Somebody else drenched in sweat. Motherfucker, not one other person. Sometimes an entire room of them. And, and, and you could be a girl in a room full of 30 dudes and they're all, especially if it's nogi, if it's nogi night, oh, bitch, you're going to go home bathed in everyone else's funk. Or, or you can shower at the gym. But you're going to, how about this? You're going to get off those mats bathed in everyone else's essence. It would be impossible to avoid it. You can go and look at the mats after a nogi night, and it's just, it looks like a sheet of just sweat sitting on top of it. Dude, I've, this is a true story. Anyone who's ever trained will tell you what I'm about to tell you is 1,000% true. I one time was trying to pass a guy's guard. It was nogi, and... Not everyone sweats the same amount, right? Some people are bigger sweaters than other people. I don't know what the word would be exactly, but uh, you can imagine, uh, you know, I sweat more than a lot of people. And I remember I was trying to open his gun and I had double bicep control and then I tripoded up to my feet. Um, I don't, it wasn't correct what I was doing, but just follow me here. And I remember, this was years ago, I remember I had sweat pouring off my forehead and a row of it, not just one, but like like a big old chunk of, of it directly all fell into my uh, sparring partner's mouth. <laughs> um, and this and that had happened to me one time. I was underneath in mount, and uh, uh, another guy's sweat went right in my mouth. It goes all over your face. Either you care about it or you don't. And if you care about it, you can't train. So your only option is to just be like, fuck it, I'm just going to bathe in everyone else's funk and then I'm going to just practice good hygiene habits and wash my clothes and, and that's what I will do. But they're, like a, dude, this is combat sports. Getting someone else's sweat and dirt all over you is, should be the least of your concerns. Someone writes, Kamzat has taken Till as his friend, and there's nothing Till can do about it. Yeah, I bet. That's fucking hilarious. I love BC's idea for a women's heavyweight division. It's more like an open division, but yeah. How likely do you think it is to ever come to fruition, be that UFC, PFL? Anything stateside, extremely unlikely. Anything overseas, where there's no uh, athletic commission and UFC self-regulates? Granted, they typically borrow what Nevada does, but they have the capacity to do whatever they want. Over there, you might see it. Uh, people complaining about the audio. Yeah, these won't these won't be used next week. This is the last week we're using this. And also, I got to replace this battery. Thoughts on Wentz to Washington? Man, just fuck my life. I'm, I hate this motherfucking team so much. <laughs> Seriously, I just wish they would be. I, I wish they could be relegated. Honestly, this is the biggest. I've never in my life wanted to see relegation more 
than I do now. It's like I, I wish they could send them to like college. Yeah, go play these college losers. You fucking. You know, what, what do I think about it? Okay, he's better than Taylor Heineke. It's going to be in, dude, every, dude, they do this every fucking year. Every year they trot out something new. New name, new coach, new draft pick, new whatever the fuck, new initiative, new new season ticket plan. New If you had to be in this market, man, and the results are just the same. They're always the fucking same. Sometimes they're a little bit worse where you're 3-13, and 13, hello, you know, Shanahan, or they're a little bit better and, you know, Riverboat Ron's probably trying his best, you know. But, dude... How can anybody win here? How can anybody? You saw Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson would rather would rather retire than probably play in Washington. Nobody wants to come here because it's where fucking losers come. And it used to be the case where, you know, if you came from here, you were the guy, like if you were a coach, like what coach besides Joe Gibbs left here anything other than ruined? Jim Zorn. Uh, what was the, what, the Jake, you think Jake Gruden left here and is just going to get hired? Where's Jay, Jay Gruden going to go? Uh, I guess um, not Schottenheimer, but who's the OC? He played. Who's the OC for um, the Chargers for a while? Norm. Um, uh, who was the? Who was? What was his name? The offensive. He was coach here, and then he was like off. North Turner. North Turner. North Turner. North Turner kind of rebounded a little bit, but in general, like how about Scott McLuhan? Just you know, ruined. Uh, Bruce Allen ruined RG three. Uh, this is the point I was going to make. Now, like, yes, like obviously a lot of players leave here and still do well, and it's a great thing. But you also have players leaving here and they're fucking ruined. You know, nobody, nobody wants to, nobody wants to be here. And who could blame them? Worst owner in the league by a fucking country mile. Terrible culture. The NFL doesn't want to do anything about it. At least not yet. They haven't been. You know, Snyder hasn't tripped the alarm for them to, to really want to get him out. And so we're just stuck. We're stuck until he sells the team or dies of old age. So, and if they put a park in Loudoun County, I mean, Loudoun County is where this fucking dirtbag lives. You know who lives out there? Losers and Othello. That's it. That's who lives out there. No one, do you live in Loudoun County or still Fairfax? Fairfax. You're still in Fairfax. Okay, but you're close to Loudoun, right? They want, to, they want to put it near Dulles Airport. Let me tell you something. If someone says, hey, I want to fly into D.C., and they're like, oh, but you got to land in Dulles, everyone goes, ugh. If you land in the National Airport, everyone's like, oh, money. Okay, right there, you know, just right outside the city. Boom, perfect. They want to put it near Dulles. It's like, dude, who the fuck is going to go to these games? I mean, fuck this team. I hate the Commanders. And they call it the fucking Commanders. Worst fucking name in the pro sports. <laughs> just, I, and, and, you know. I'd rather be a Georgetown basketball fan than a Commanders fan at this point. Do you or BC read the live chat during MK? No. If not, why not? I can't. Someone says they watched my Gaethje Habib breakdown. They, they liked it. Would you say that doing analysis on Habib has helped or improved your craft? Big time. But every one of them helps. Just the act of doing it week in, week out, which I'm trying to obviously do here more often, just the act of doing it is the is the uh, is the most important part. All right, I see people are gonna hate like a bitch. Uh, Luke, we love you, man. But at this point in your life, you've got to accept that these technical issues are to you what the front kick to the face is. I mean, here's the thing: the camera did die, so you can dock me for it. But we charged it before we got here, and we left it plugged in to my uh, the the strongest. Mac laptop charger you can buy, 
like this thing powers my A7S III like no problem. This piece of shit, you know. So that, it, you know, I gotta get a new battery for it. Fair enough, fair enough. But I had the backup. I'm obviously putting some effort in. I hope that you guys understand that. Thoughts on why the UFC changed its pressers? I miss seeing multiple fighters on stage with Dana post-event for finality and new stories. Dana cut off the MMA media from doing those scrums. He still doesn't want, obviously now, post um, contender series, but he used to do them all the time after these events. I was there for the famous, you know, cyborg looks like Vanderlei in a dress um, thing in Baltimore. Um, why did they change it? I think this format is more popular. Again, they used to have more fighters up there doing this for longer with Dana doing the thing when he had to make this push into local media. If they went to Atlanta, he wanted to make sure that they had all these fighters on stage for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, right? They wanted to make sure the AJC could see it, they could have access, they could show these guys. But now that the show kind of comes to them a little bit, they have more discretion. The, they, now it's a fan event, didn't used to be a fan event, now it's a fan event. And I also think that they made it a fan event because the fans lost um, the open workouts. Open workouts used to be a free thing that fans could go to, and those might come back. And they might, by the way, just keep pressers how they are, but uh, definitely the fans did lose the open workouts, and so this is at least a way to give them something for free that they can go to on fight week. Uh, no question, but the weight loss is showing. Yeah, thanks, bro. What will it take for ESPN to take Stephen A. Smith off of UFC coverage? It, it's never going to happen. Has Masvidal criticism was in, oh his Masvidal criticism was so insanely bad? Can you remember? Do you guys remember when he when um, he had something that like was identical to what Cowboy had said, but was actually very different than what Cowboy had meant? And he tried to do a victory lap, and some of you jabronis were like, "Yeah, man, Stephen A. Smith was right." <laughs> How could he be right but for luck? He's not even trying to be right. That's not his, his job has nothing to do with that. Um, and more importantly, to answer your question, ESPN pays him, what, 15 million a year or something? Um, they love him. They love everything about him. Like, that's never, it. you know, some scandal would have to rock the Stephen A. Smith world, but nothing else would do it. Not even close. But yeah, like people defending his analysis, like, dude, shh. Um, address to send you guys products. I, I will have it next week. I promise. I promise I will have it next week. I promise. I will make sure I put it on the screen for everyone because we do have a mailing address. Um, okay. I think that is it. Sorry about the technical mishap. We did rebound. Huh? That's got to count for something. And we didn't rebound with, like, less technology. We just rebounded with, you know, still the same thing. So, um, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. This will continue to get better. This will continue to be what it can and supposed to be. Um, be on the lookout for more content coming soon on this channel before next Tuesday. And, uh, yeah, all kinds of good stuff. All right? Thank you guys so much for watching. Thumbs up. Let me get this ready. Hit subscribe. Y'all are the best. And I will see you next time. Peace. Um, and we're done.